Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome to KickServeRadio.com, everybody. We are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Uh, We're post-U.S. Open now, which uh, conventional wisdom would make you think that there's not really anything to talk about, but such is not the case. KickServeRadio.com team is comprised of seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world, Mats Vlander, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine, We'll start with you, Matt, and we'll start with the Laver Cup. It was an absolute demolition. We were thinking we were going to go into a weekend where we would be seeing great drama with both tennis and golf events in a team format that would really provide high drama for us on Sunday, and such was not the case uh, on either front. Let's start with the Laver Cup, being that we're a tennis show. Matt, it was 14-1. to 1 the European team, is there something that we don't know about Bjorn Borg that would lead us to believe that he in some way, shape, or form uh, has some sort of an influence on these players to get them to perform at a level to where they would embarrass John McEnroe this way? Well, I would think that Bjorn Borg wants to um, embarrass John McEnroe in any, any way he can. I know they're very close <laughs> friends. Um, I think John McEnroe uh, has a lot to say to his players uh, compared to Bjorn. I think Bjorn Borg is more of just a silent uh, captain um, who uh, I think lets you do your your job. But I think more than anything, it just tells you how far ahead Europe is from the rest of the world on the men's side. Uh, And I also have to say I'm, I'm, I'm quite impressed with all the young guys, because they all showed up. They all went there. Uh, Zverev and Tsitsipas and Medvedev and, and Kasper Ruud. Uh, I mean, they're all keen to play. So obviously, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic has planted the seed the times that they have played, because in Europe, this is a big deal for them to be part of this. And I think having Bjorn there makes it a huge deal to perform and play well. But I don't know. Do they have to adjust the scoring system again? I'm not sure. Some of the matches, though, to be fair, were closer uh, in the set scores than how it ended up in the end. But, yeah, a little bit of a, a setback for the Labor Cup to me. Johnny, several shows back, we were talking about some of the players back in your day that when you were younger, you really idolized and you looked up to. And I was assuming that coming up as a young American player, the first two players that would come out of your mouth would be McEnroe and Connors. And yet you said, no, 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 actually, Borg was my guy, too. Is there something about the aura of Borg that although Matt's claims he's kind of a silent captain, just the fact that you've got that guy over there on your sideline and you look over there and you see the great Bjorn Borg, it's enough right there, just the sight of him to bring out the best in a player. Is that how you would have thought of it? I think so. Uh, 
you know, looking at Borg on the sideline and seeing the players around him. And to me, it's the coolest thing. I mean, they, I just keep thinking what's going through their minds. And I saw Rublev at one point had his arm around Borg and just, you know, hamming it up with Borg. And I'm thinking, I don't think for a tennis player, it gets any better than that. I mean, thinking about the great Bjorn Borg and hanging out with him and being there with him and him giving you some tips. I mean, it's just, there's some aura about Borg that I just don't know anyone else has. McEnroe, I think, was outmanned though. I mean, when you look at the rankings and you look at the players, I just don't think it was a, you know, on paper. And then it, it proved out to be, it was a blowout and, 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 and it kind of rightfully so really. Let's go, let's trace this back a little further. Matt's because I'm interested, is that how you guys felt when you were around Borg and you guys were coming up? And here it is, you and Yoki and Anders and and, uh, and Henrik and Stefan, and it's like you want to show out for Borg because he was your guy, and suddenly it creates this, we got five guys in the top ten post-Borg. Did Borg have something to do with that too? I mean, Borg is the main reason why we had such great tennis players uh, after him, he was an easy player to try and imitate in terms of the style, um, have a mindset, which is don't make mistakes. Let your opponent make mistake. Uh, always show up fit and healthy. Always show up knowing that you have trained harder than anybody else on tour um, and then have a great attitude. But uh, I'll tell you a little, a little funny story. This is Bjorn Borg for you. Uh, I played with him and Joachim Newstrom down in uh, Uruguay. Uh, in Punta del Este, in something called the Senior uh, Nations Cup, which was a Davis Cup for over 35 guys. And I brought my friend, um, Jack Deese, uh, along. And I said, you can be our captain. And he's like, I'm American. I'm not Swedish. It doesn't matter. You can be our captain. (laughs) So he was sitting there, and he was the captain for when Bjorn played. I can't I think Bjorn played maybe Guillermo Vilas. And Borg comes in. In those days, we switched sides and sat down after one game. And he comes in after the first changeover, after the first game, and he walks over and he looks at my buddy, Jack, who's sitting down. And he says to Jack, Jack, you are sitting in my chair. (laughs) And Jack just completely melted. That's Borg for you. He's funny. He's quiet. And when he says something, you, you listen to it. And when he doesn't say something... That means he's agreeing with you or with the players. And I think that's the message that he's sending. I also think that he's so humble that I don't think he will ever claim to understand exactly how the guys hit the ball today compared to how he did it or how I did it with different rackets. So I think it's it's more just on, on a mental play. But I think they want to – this is bored. I have something to live up to. I want to impress him in a way. Now, if you look at John McEnroe – Everybody knows uh, John McEnroe, how good he was a tennis player, and everybody knows the way that he was on the court. So I would think if you're playing for him, what are you trying to have him tell you? Is he to be impressed with a little half volley, to be impressed with you uh, being slightly angry and, and completely determined and focused? Or I feel like looking at John McEnroe, there's a, a little bit of a mixed message if you play underneath him, whereas with Borg, is plain and simple. Good attitude, don't make mistakes, run like hell, and hopefully you win in the end. That's the message he sends. So, Johnny, let's let's talk about the McEnroe side of this equation because I'm getting a kick out of, first of all, I read some quotes 
post labor cup from Curio saying, well, you know, this was probably my last labor cup, which I don't know why he would say that, but he did. And he's like, next year, I'll probably be on my couch watching this thing. But how'd you like to be a fly on the wall? during a curious meltdown and the guy that he has to go over and sit next to to try to talk him off the ledge is Johnny Mac. Like, what's Johnny Mac going to draw from to be able to put this kid into a position to kind of collect himself and get back to just playing tennis and not just going into a complete psycho rant? Yeah, I don't know on that one. <laughs> I, I didn't see, was there some body language between the two of them that makes you think that there's something that went on. I don't know, but, um, you know, McEnroe stays pretty quiet over there. I, you know, I think he watches those guys and he's a great figurehead. I mean, they all, you know, the Americans, they all look up to, to John McEnroe for, for the accomplishments and the name that he's got. He's a tremendous commentator. And I think that, you know, these guys know him more as a commentator and, and he's so good at it and, and they know his expertise in tennis is, He's definitely got the results, but um, I mean, he's a huge presence um, and it's, it's so interesting to see the two different captains because McEnroe obviously is so vocal and he's so animated. And then like Matt says, you know, Borg just sits back. He doesn't say anything, but that, that has so much more impact to me, just Borg being on the sideline, to be honest with you, than McEnroe and whatever he's saying. Yeah, Andy, I want to throw it out to you. Isn't it, though, a similar situation where you watch, you, you mentioned the Ryder Cup. So the Ryder Cup is very different from the President's Cup, where the rest of the world gets together, and, uh, not Europe, of course, but the rest of the world, the professional golfers get together and they try to beat up on the United States of America. They've never really had a, a, a team uh, sort of team. They have a team spirit towards each other, but who are they playing for? Uh, in America, uh, or U.S., they have you know, that as a practice round, and then they go into the Ryder Cup. But Americans play for America in both situations. And I think for Europeans in the Labor Cup, it's much easier to play for Europe than it is to play for the rest of the world. But in the end, just like at the Ryder Cup, the Europeans, if you heard them, they're not really playing for Europe. They're playing for each other. They're playing for the team because, I mean, Europe, we are together and the European Union and so on, but we're not from the same country. So I think that it's, it's a little unfair to assume that McEnroe's team would go in there and feel as strongly about winning uh, as the Europeans uh, do. And also, I have to say, Roger Federer said a pretty pretty strict uh, tone the first couple of years he was playing because he was so fired up and you can't go and lose now. This is Federer's tournament. This is his event together with Rod Laver. So I think it's a little unfair. Will it ever grow into a proper team event? I'm not so sure. I really am not sure that the rest of the world team will ever feel like they're playing for somebody except for each other. All right. I'll make a final comment on this before we go to break. Johnny, you made the comment before we went on air that to you, maybe a little bit of a glorified exhibition. I feel like those players are a little more into it than that, or at least they pretend to be. But here's here's what I'll say based on what I heard from both of you. I think that Borg's presence, his quiet presence on that sideline, as you say, Johnny, is much more impactful, and here's why. You said it yourself, Johnny. He's a commentator. He's a coach. He's a, they, These players see him every day. Like John McEnroe walking up on the sideline of a tennis court is another day at the office for all these guys. Bjorn Borg walks out on the court? Now that's special. 
And I think that ultimately that may be the difference is that Borg has this, this aura of, of, of like, of, of Elvis or, you know, some sort of bigger than life mythological uh, persona that represents so much of the best parts of what our sport has ever had to offer. Johnny Mac is still Johnny Mac and he's cool and he's hip and he's rock and roll and he's a rebel and all that cool stuff. But Borg is like, he's like halfway to being a god. And I think that's the difference. When we come back, we're going to talk about the new documentary that is all the rage. And it's about Marty Fish and mental illness and some of the things that are going on in our sport right now. I know many of you have seen it. We've got some comments on it. So don't go away. Back with more KickServeRadio.com right after this. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media. But why Squad Pod? Squad Pod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the tuchus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Our team, as you know, is comprised of the great Mats Vlander, Johnny Levine, I'm Andy Zoden, and the documentary that we were talking about on our way out before the break is called Untold. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's very well done, and it's the story of Marty Fish's, basically his career, his ascent from junior tennis to moving away from home at age 15, to moving in with Andy Roddick and his family, 
and and becoming a touring pro and to some extent Matt's competing with Andy for that number one ranking in the United States, which, as you have said, is a much bigger deal to be ranked real high in the United States than it is in most individual countries around the world. Do you still feel like that's the case and maybe it was even more the case back when those two boys were coming up uh, on the heels of, of Sampras and Agassi and, and the, that generation? No, I do. I think that they, I mean, first of all, I think it needs to be said, I think that Marty Fish, uh, and I think if you ask all of them, and if you ask Andy Roddick as well, I would say Marty Fish is most probably the one that people thought was the most talented in terms of, in terms of feel, in terms of, uh, um, I don't know, maybe not understanding, but in terms of hitting the ball, in terms of being able to do everything. Of course, his forehand was a bit of a weakness, but I mean, he was, he was a great uh, tennis player in terms of what he can do with a tennis ball. And I do think that the pressure of being number one in America uh, is something that they need to go away from in America. That's really important to not think that that is a big deal once you come out on the pro tour. And I know it's hard because there's uh, over 350 million people here and it's basically like being number one in Europe. But it is something that they need to address. I think we're not trying to be number five in America. But the problem is that you are number one in the 12 and under and the 14 and under and the 16 and under. And that is a huge deal as an American. And Johnny, obviously you would know about this. Compare that to being number one in Sweden in the 14 and under with 8 million people. I mean, number one in America, that's that's pressure and it follows you around. So I do think that uh, uh, Marty Fish, but... Yes, there's a lot of pressure. And I, and I think actually you can see it on the women's side today. I really feel like there's not, none of those ladies are really willing to carry that torch that Serena uh, has left lit, hopefully, and Venus uh, and Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys and Coco Vanderbilt. I mean, these guys are so talented, such good players, but it doesn't seem like anyone is really ready to take it uh, and be the America's number one and following Serena and Venus' footsteps. Uh, and I think that's something they need to address in, in the USTA. I spoke to Jim Lair, Johnny, prior to us going on the air because he had a presence in the documentary. And, and in our conversation, he talked about the activation of stress hormones. And I asked him, I'm like, well, is it possible that Marty Fish, had he just kind of gone to college and been a great player, maybe played a little pro tennis, no big deal, married his beautiful wife, had his beautiful kids and his family, made some money, got a job, like he would have never dealt with any of this. And I want to ask you, because when you got to the University of Texas, when you and I first met, the day you walked onto our campus, you were the number one player on the team. And you were trying to manage moving from Phoenix, Arizona to Austin, Texas, becoming a freshman, dealing with the life of a college student, and on top of that, being anointed the number one player on a team with a pretty storied tradition. It wasn't like we were winning national championships left and right, but Texas was pretty good at a minimum. How hard was it for you to try to manage all of that, and how much of that weighed on you to the point where it would, as Dr. Lair refers, activated those stress hormones? Yeah, I mean, if, if uh, Marty Fish was sitting on a beach most of his life, I don't think any of this would have, you know, manifested. And I think that, uh, you know, it's how you handle the pressures. And when, when you know, the so-called pressures start to, um, you know, grow and become more. And, you know, that's when these demons and these, these anxieties and these things, if they're there in your system, 
have more potential to come out. And, um, you know, I think handling that and having the, the, um, the management of that. And that's why guys like Jim Lear, you know, these sports psychiatrists give you the tools to handle the pressure when it starts to, to get, you know, greater. And I think, uh, that's one of the things that you did. You met me, Andy, that one night and you helped me socially and you got me off the tennis court a little bit thinking about other things. And I think it helped me relax, to be honest with you. And I'm not kidding. So, I mean, you always, you know, athletes are always looking for the outlets to release the, the tension and the pressure. And I think that's why you see so many players now, they travel with sports psychologists. And so they're trying to combat the, those, those extreme pressures because we all feel it. It's how do you manage it? How do you handle it? What can you use mentally to, to help you not think of the things that create the pressure? That documentary, Andy, I mean, you know, I know you saw it. I was just blown away how how incredible it was and how it touched on so many facets of Marty's life and, you know, from American tennis and the juniors and, and, and the work ethic and what it took to get there. And, and then you, you know, you end up with the mental stuff and the relationship with Roddick and the Davis cup. It was, it was, if any one of you have not seen it, I, I just really, really promote that, that documentary. It was fascinating, even for non-tennis players. Oh, no, no, no doubt about it. Matt, let's talk about your issues with it. You know, when I think about Borg and McEnroe, the film, they show scenes where Borg is sort of, you know, sitting in the chair in that Wimbledon match. And the look in his eyes was just very, you know, like like that of a, of a, of a conflicted guy, a guy that's going through a lot and feeling it. And I, And it just seemed like the Swedish way, if you will, was to not be, you know, too animated about when your stress hormones are activated, but I've got to believe there was a point in your career. Maybe it was after winning the French at 17, but my suspicion is more after beating Lendl in the U S open at 88. Was there any point in time in between or or was one of those two, the times where maybe you felt these stress hormones activating and you feeling the way to the world? Um, Yeah, it certainly wasn't when I, after I won um, the French open in 1982 as a 17 year old, because that was, uh, heading into the unknown and, and I, I didn't, never really felt the pressure. I always apparently said when I was a 14, 15 year old uh, that I am not the next Bjorn Borg. I am the, the first Mats Bielander. And that's how I felt for sure. Um, I never really felt the pressure because Borg was so good and you couldn't really do what he did in terms of your achievement, but obviously you could behave and try and play like him. Um, but yes, in 1988, after I beat Landel, I wasn't stressed out to the point where I think if anything, my heart rate was too low to start playing tennis. I lost my motivation. And I know that that's how stress hormones can hit you as well, or at least pressure. It can make you feel flat. Uh, and I, I guess you can just go back to, to looking at what happened to Novak Djokovic at the U.S. Open. I mean, I think he was a little bit flat in that match for for maybe not obvious reasons. How can you be flat? The biggest match of his career, and suddenly it's all a little bit too much. That's how I felt uh, after that. But it took a couple of years before that really showed up on the court. I just didn't have the same results. But I think what's really important, I heard somebody said that, you know, the Marty Fish – uh, thing comes out at the right time because Naomi Osaka is obviously uh, have been open about her mental health issues. Now we must never compare. First of all, 
um, apples and apples because Naomi Osaka, I'm not really sure if she is feeling the pressure and she has mental uh, health issues because of tennis or because of life outside the court or the pressure that being Naomi Osaka, wherever she goes. And then Marty Fish, did he feel pressure from the outside or was this pressure from himself? And that's why he couldn't deal with it. So I think that's really dangerous to put them in the same group. Um, I think Naomi Osaka said she had had bouts with depression for three years. Well, that makes you believe that it has something to do with tennis. But at the same time, uh, did it? Is it only tennis? Uh, so I think it's very, very difficult to to uh, to put them in the same category and to categorize anything. I think every every situation is completely different. So I think Marty Fish, he's out there playing celebrity golf tournaments and he seems to be dealing with that. When I go out and play golf, my, my stress hormone is going through the roof and that's <laughs> just having one of you guys watch me swing. So I think Marty is more about just playing tennis and what kind of pressure did he put on himself and then the expectations that maybe America put on him for being number one in America. I'm going to comment on this, Johnny, before you do, because I, part of my conversation with Dr. Lair was interesting and I'm going to sort of transpose what he said with what I think. And, and that is that I think in Marty Fish's case, Matt, as you say, Marty's stress hormones were activated as a result of continuing to try to climb that ladder and get to that place. In Naomi Osaka's case, she got to that place. And once getting to that place, all of the demands that were placed on her off of the tennis court, which are probably substantially higher now than they've ever been with respect to everything from all of the mouths that you have to feed with regard to your entourage, uh, to all of the obligations that you have to your sponsors, to all of what is uh, expected of you with regard to helping uh, and serving underprivileged communities and, and grassroots programs with getting kids to play tennis and, and, and television obligations and radio obligations and podcast. All. I just think all of that was not what Naomi Osaka signed up for. She signed up for the tennis. And in Marty Fish's case, there was a, an expectation of, okay, guys, look, here's what Jimmy and John did. Here's what Pete and Andre and Jim Currier and Michael Chang did, and now it's you guys. And they're all like, wow, that's a lot. And Andy Roddick was kind of like, you know, obviously he never matched what those guys did from a Grand Slam count perspective, but he seemed cool with it. Like Andy was cool with being a rock star. Andy was cool with hosting Saturday Night Live and going on, you know, David Letterman and all that kind of stuff and being a rock star. But Marty was maybe not that kind of kid. Did you see it that way, Johnny? Yeah, I, th I think I think to a certain degree, um, and I also think that Marty never had the success on the tour, uh, you know, early in his career like like Andy did. And you know that old saying: it's just you know it's a lot easier getting to the top than staying at the top. And and I think that's where a lot of pressure. You know, you asked me about when I got to UT as a freshman and I had, you know, it was number one and I was, you know, had a lot of expectations. You know, when I got to Texas, even though I, you know, right. ended up being number one on the team my freshman year and you'd think there was a lot of pressure, you know, I, no one really knew me. I mean, there were all these great college guys and I was coming out of the juniors, even though I was highly ranked, 
I had nothing to lose. I mean, the, the, all these great players that were, you know, juniors and seniors, you know, I was like the low man on the totem pole, right. even though I was one on the team. And so I think what happens is, is, you know, and then, then I get to my junior year and now I'm like two in the country and now I'm feeling a lot more pressure. I mean, that's like, so it's like Zvera, right? He plays so much better when he's down or when he, you think he's got an injury because the pressure's off. That's where I think the level of, of just masterful champions are the Connors, are the Nadals, are the Federers, are the Steffi Grafs, where, I mean, they get to number one and they play at number one like they play at number 30. And, and I think that's, that's where the true champions, because most people, most athletes play better when they're down than when they're up. And I think that's like Marty. I mean, Marty played, you know, loose all his career to, for the most part, he gets to top eight and then the pressure mounts. And so even with Matt's, I mean, Matt's got to that point in 1988. It was like, could he sustain it? Could he sustain being number one? Maybe that was a pressure that was just so great. And he handled it in a different way where he, you know, his heart rate went real, real low. So, I mean, that's a whole nother topic, but it's just an interesting, this mental piece of tennis and sports is just when you get to these levels of great athletes and the, the levels are so close, it just comes down to the mental. And it, it, it's, you know, and that's what I think is so interesting about it. So, so Matt's Johnny, if I'm paraphrasing correctly and Johnny, correct me if I'm wrong, but what he's basically saying, Matt's is you got to number one and then started playing like you were number 30. Is that John? <laughs> that's, exactly right. that's exactly right. No, um, I think that, yeah, I think that you're right. And I think the one thing that America, that, that obviously because it's such a huge country, uh, it's that team spirit. I think that's really important. Now, I think I, I was a Davis Cup captain for Sweden and we played uh, the, uh, Andy Roddick's team with Andy and Marty and James Blake and the Bryan brothers. And they were unbelievable. In fact, they won Davis Cup. Uh, I think the year that I was Davis Cup captain and they were a proper team. They were proper, proper friends. They were a proper team. And I think that it's really important to have a, a, a safety net, if you may. And that could be having an older brother like Misha Sverev also be a pro player and two parents that both play tennis. Uh, or it could be that you literally, you are happy for your teammate, for your for your countrymen when they do well. I was happy when Stefan Edberg won Wimbledon in 1988 because the media had somebody to call because I lost in the quarters. I'm like, well, thank God Stefan did it because I don't want to talk about losing in the quarters. So I do think, and I think that's the problem that, that we have in America is that uh, can they somehow bring these 12 and under and 14 and under players together and make them feel like they are part of a team early on I think that team spirit is very difficult to create in America because it's such a huge country. Because again, uh, it's a little bit disappointing right now when you look at the, the world rankings and American men, and they are great players, all of them. But somebody needs to take uh, take the lead and, and show the way for Francis Tiafoe and Riley Opelka and Taylor Fritz. And they're right there, but no one seems to want to carry that torch. When we come back, you know, I have an idea on how to, how we're, we're going to fix tennis in the Olympics, and you guys bought into it. Now, as you guys have been talking and I've been thinking, I have a fix for the Labor Cup, so we'll talk about that. There's some other interesting storylines in tennis that I want to touch on, and, and as promised, we are going to get a decision from Johnny Levine 
on whether or not the Arizona Tennis Classic will be back in 2022. You'll remember it was wildly successful in 2019, so much so that Paul Anacone made reference to it during this Labor Cup, talking about, about Berrettini and his buddy Johnny Levine, who said that Berrettini was going to be real good, real fast, and he was right. So if Johnny's that kind of prognosticator, that kind of tournament director, we need him back with his Arizona Tennis Classic. More KickServeRadio.com right after this. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Max Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Max Vlander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Matt's is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt's, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of... Tennis Channel Podcast Network, Matt's Johnny and AZ. We've been all over the board tonight. We're talking about Marty Fish Untold. We're talking Labor Cup. And I teased the fact that I had a fix for the Labor Cup. And I'm going to give it to you now so that we can move on because we've got some other things to discuss. Most importantly, Johnny's pending decision on his tournament, the Arizona Tennis Classic. Is it going to keep going? Because it's such a great event. It would be so sad not to see it come back. But what if this was the case, guys, with the Labor Cup? We look at the FedEx standings. We look at the Ryder Cup standings. We look at the race to O2 Arena. What if the Labor Cup had some built-in qualifying points in and amongst the rest of the ATP Tour events? You know, how you do in the, in the Masters 1000s and the 500s or even in the majors, 
gets you points so that you're sort of keeping up with it all year long to see ooh, who's going to be on Team Europe, who's going to be on Team World, so-and-so's got this many points, so-and-so has got that many points. Okay, you guys, it's the round of 16 of the U.S. Open, and just, oh, by the way, here's where the two, these two players happen to stack up in the Labor Cup standings just to add a little more juice to that match that otherwise might not be there, and it kind of keeps the Labor Cup fresh in your mind and something to look forward to. I'll start with you, Mats Vlander, because you seem to be the odds-on favorite to one day take over for Bjorn Borg as captain of Team Europe. What do you think? Well, that I'm not sure about. We have quite, quite a few players. Uh, Ivan Landon would most probably get the nod at some point. I think Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg, I'm sure. Um, so I'm not sure. I'd be happy to do it, of course. But, yeah, I like that, Andy. I think that's a good idea. I think that the press has to buy into it, though. I think that's the, that's the first big thing. They have to buy into it, and they have to ask the question. And in golf, the, the, the media asks the question all the time uh, about Ryder Cup and, and how much are you focusing. I think Labor Cup is not quite there. Of course, we have the Davis Cup. We have the ATP Cup. We got Labor Cup. So which ranking do you want to uh, uh, be at the top of? Or is it just the ATP ranking? So I'm not sure, but something most probably needs to be done or do we just hang on and hope that uh, the rest of the world uh, will have some superstars going forwards? I mean, with Denis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime, um, you would think that they're going to come out at some point. Uh, but uh, right now, it's it's definitely limping it along. Roger Federer was there, as you guys saw. It sort of means a whole lot to him. He was sitting watching, but it's a, t- it's a tough... Um, Right now, that's a tough situation. I don't know if they should change the rules, though, because you're trying to build up history and trying to build up an event. I think you're going to have to stick with it. And hopefully at some point, uh, the, the rest of the world team turns it around. And, and um, just like the American team did in Ryder Cup, they turned it around finally. Johnny, qualies for the Labor Cup, does it legitimize the event a little bit more in the eyes of a guy that referred to it as a glorified exhibition, being, that being yourself? Andy, as far as the Labor Cup for ranking points, the only way it could happen is you can't have points on an ATP event for an invitational tournament. So in other words, these players are picked, handpicked, and invited to play, not based on ranking. So in that regard, it'll never be an event that could have points in it unless it was based on ranking and entry that way. So, you know, if you do the qualities then you know, would have to fall into that line of thinking. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know how that would work. The promoters might want to handpick guys and not worry about the points, but I know that the ATP at first was not on board with it because, you know, they didn't want to have their services utilized in competing with the world tour finals. And I know they found a happy medium, but as far as it now being for, for points, I believe you would have to go to a entry ranking uh, since system for it to, to go that route. All right. I'll just push back ever so slightly on that by saying that the Ryder Cup has a qualifying and it also has a couple of captain's picks. So you could have sort of the hybrid of the qualifying system with the invitational so that you sort of um, add something legitimate like the, the, the qualifying system, but then in the end you've got John McEnroe going, you know, Riley Opelka's got the biggest serve. This is indoors. We're picking him, you know, kind of a thing. At the same time, let me just throw this out there. I mean, would it become more serious of an event if they actually followed the doubles ranking? I mean, I understand why John McEnroe picks Jack Sock 
and Nick Curios because they're most probably well Jack Sock is most probably the best doubles player in the world uh, when he's fit and healthy he's unreal but he hasn't played enough to have his ranking up there so would it would it legitimize the whole thing if you did take the two best doubles teams from the rest of the world and you actually followed the ranking I think it would legitimize it uh, if you followed the ranking completely and maybe have maximum two captain's picks or two wild cards, but but uh, nearly not. I mean, nearly not. And then players would want to be part of it, and then they would have to get their ranking up. But I think the doubles thing, that was a bit weird to me, to see Nick Uris and Jack Sock. Although, of course, I understand it. They're great doubles players. But at the same time, what do the double specialists think out there? I, do I ever get a chance to play Labor Cup? I'm, I'm the best player in the world, but I have no chance of playing. So th- I think that's a bit weird. And that's where... I go with you, John. It's a little bit of a glorified exhibition at this moment. Well, I guarantee you one thing. If the Bryan brothers were still out there, you'd have doubles players in the Labor Cup. There's no two ways about that. All right, and speaking of going with Johnny, enough's enough. We were going to talk a little bit about Ashley Barty saying that she was going to shut it down, uh, not going to play Indian Wells. Her coach makes comments about the ridiculousness of the WTA finals because they moved it to Guadalajara. They're playing at uh, high altitude with pressureless tennis balls. You can Google it. Uh, we were going to talk about John McEnroe defending his comments that he made about Emma Raducanu at Wimbledon, saying that the London press loves to make something out of nothing. You can Google that, too. That's not important compared to what I'm about to ask Johnny Levine right now. And this is it. This is where we're going to end it because this is huge. Johnny Levine, you did a challenger in 2019, the Arizona Tennis Classic. It was an immense effort on your part, and you realized at that point in time how much respect for you had for these tournament directors, these tournament organizers, and what an undertaking it was. The fact of the matter was you knocked it so far out of the park that it exceeded your own expectations. And we still look at some of the players that were first discovered at that event. And we go back to Matteo Berrettini, but we had Casper Ruud in the draw. We had Lorenzo Sanego in the draw. John Millman was in the draw. Dafid Gofan was in the draw. Mikhail Kukushkin was in the final and had match point on Berrettini. Jamie Murray won the doubles with Neil Skupski. Your field was loaded. It was a hell of an event. Now I ask you, are we going to be treated? And and by the way, if you say yes, Mats Vlander has stated for the record that he will be there. You know I'll be there. So what? Who cares? But Mats Vlander will be there. Are you going to do the Arizona Tennis Classic in Phoenix, Arizona during the second week of Indian Wells? in 2022 the final decision unfortunately andy no there's still a couple of details that need to be worked out with the atp that we're waiting on yeah no i i feel bad that i can't give a definitive either way but on the next show if we're in two weeks you will have it no question so do you want me to give you details then and leave leave it at that because right now i would tell you that I think it looks pretty good, but there has to be a a little bit more um, information sent my way, which I'm waiting for. And um, and then we'll be able to uh, to give you what you're looking for. That's as slippery as as any politician (laughs) out there. There's no question. You should run for governor of Arizona with answers like that. (laughs) I will tell you, I'm I'm leaning towards it because I think I got a verbal commitment from our co-host, Matt Spielander, okay. that he will end up in Arizona. And that's a big, big target. 
that's pulling me to do this event. I got to tell you. All right, Matt's put him over the top, will you? What, what can you tell him <laughs> to convince him that this is the right thing to do? Well, I think that you need to do it because it's huge for American tennis. There you go. And tennis is on everybody's tongue between Indian Wells and Miami. Uh, and Americans need to play uh, matches. So if they don't make the second week of Indian Wells, they need to play uh, a couple of matches in a professional event like yours. So I think there's, I mean, obviously you have to do it if you can do it. I'm not sure you're going to be able to get Matteo Berrettini back there or Lloyd Harris uh, again, because they must probably make the second week of Indian Wells. But yeah, we need, and I'm going to make it easy for you, Johnny. We need more tournaments in America. We need a lot more professional tournaments in America, not futures, not challengers. We need more professional events where Americans can get used to winning uh, and uh, not get their ranking up. That's one thing, but get used to winning a couple of matches in, in, in tournaments. And, and at the moment, there's not enough American events to me in the calendar if they're going to compete with the rest of the world. I really don't think so. It would be great to have another event. I know the USTA supports a lot of these uh, lower-level challengers. They look at our event. They were nice enough last time to support us in a certain fashion, but not like the other ones just because they don't feel that a lot of the Americans are going to get into our event because the ranking cutoff is usually so high. So that's a little bit of a conflict, but you know me, I'm going to be supporting those American tennis players as much as I can, Andy. And I just hope Johnny, that a guy like Jensen Brooksby gets an opportunity to come to the desert and play your event and prove to you in person at close proximity that his slice backhand is actually not the ugliest shot in the history of <laughs> professional tennis, as you have suggested that it is for so many shows running. Uh, but it would be nice to get him to town, wouldn't it? Yeah, at this point, with that <laughs> this point, the way he's playing, oh yeah. Imagine Jensen Brooksby and Mats Vlander out on that court hitting slice backhands back and forth as, as part of an exhibition. It's a slice backhand exhibition, uh, a, a before and after. Back in the day where it was a beautiful shot, and then... And then Mats will give him some <laughs> lessons on that slice. That's what I want to see. <laughs> no That's doubt funny. about it. All right, guys. Indian Wells is coming up. We'll have a report on that. Hopefully we'll have some good interviews coming up, too. We know we've been shortchanging you a little bit because it's just been the three of us, but we've had such great stuff to talk about. Hopefully you all have been enjoying it. Enjoy Indian Wells. Thanks for tuning in to KickServeRadio.com. We are very proudly a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we look forward to seeing you guys on the tennis courts or on the airwaves real soon.